Okay, what's one day you'd want to relive forever? Like one 24-hour stretch. Like Groundhog Day style? Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. Yeah, like your wedding day, the birth of your daughters. If I did the daughters, I'd, I have two daughters, so I'd have to pick one. That's mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Can't do that. Right. They were, it was both spectacular moments. Although those were very stressful days. Yes. I wouldn't want to relive those days. Yeah. Wedding day, I don't know. That was also, you know, it's a cliche to say, but I'm not sure. Would, would you want to relive your wedding day forever? Well, definitely not the day before my wedding day. Mm. My husband and I got in this huge fight and we almost called the whole thing off. What? Yeah. This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway. I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm a professor, historian, author, and I've always wanted to figure out how to use my fondue pot. Oh, I could totally teach you. <laughs> I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm an author, professor, biblical scholar, and like a middle schooler, I could eat pizza for every meal every day. Today, we're talking about the addictive Netflix original, Russian Doll. A 36-year-old woman is doomed or blessed to relive the day of her birth and death again and again. Will she ever escape her own personal Groundhog Day? We talk about flipping the gender. Underscript, midlife crises, Freud and Nietzsche. And why college students are obsessed with free will versus determinism debates, and we're not. Join us. Join us. Okay, I mean, I can think of a lot of days that I would not want to relive. <laughs> Right? That, that day before the but wedding thing, though, like, honestly, you were breaking down to that extent. <laughs> well, okay, I love so, it so much. the logic for me was I can think of a lot of days that I, I, so some of the best days I would really actually like to live the day before because of all the great uh, right. anticipation. Because sure, a lot sure, of times sure. great days don't live up to your expectations. But True. that was my thought behind that. So how about you? I mean, like, <laughs> you didn't really answer that question either. Well, no, you're right. I, I think it's really hard for me to think of a day that I'd want to relive Maybe the problem is that I don't really embrace my life that much. I mean, I don't know. I I think, and two, it's like I'm getting into the details now of this thought experiment. Like, do I have to just live this one day over and over again? In a sense, anything, even a great thing, would produce a certain kind of boredom with mm-hmm. it or a certain kind of, you know, navel gazing. It would just be tough, like that Groundhog Day mythology. Why? I mean, why do you think so many movies, I mean, there have been several movies and kind of pop culture bits besides Groundhog Day and Russian Doll even that have explored this idea of living over and over a single day. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is it that's appealing about that concept, do you think? Well, okay, and here's where I think that this show in particular is a really— one of the better executed versions of this story is that the title of it, Russian Doll, suggests mm-hmm. that the more times you open it, open the day slash go right. through the day, like you're getting closer to an internal core. Oh, and that I think that right. there's something that you need to learn. Like even in Groundhog Day, the mm-hmm. silly Bill Murray movie, right, mm-hmm. Bill Murray? Um, there's like this idea, there's something that you're supposed to learn. And in Russian Doll, there's some part of yourself that needs to be explored slash healed slash, mm-hmm. you know, identified. But you need to get to like that authentic core, which is a very kind of therapeutic, existentialist reading of the human person. But right. that's, so, to me, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, so the main character in Russian Doll, Nadia, right? That's her name. Nadia, yeah, she's I mean, fantastic. She, as she has to live this one day over and over again, which is her birthday party. 
I think it's her 36th birthday. Her 36th birthday, yeah. yeah. And, she, and, and she does kind of get closer and closer to this core. I mean, and she discovers, you know, and she she's a wild character. I mean, if you haven't seen the show, like it's so entertaining. She's just like off the wall. She's like no other character you've probably ever seen on TV, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, just like super smart, but like also just like, you know, a drug addict. You know, not really an yeah. addict, but like somebody who's like very like recreationally promiscuous with drugs and she's, men. And yeah, she's just you know. wild. She's got like this mane of hair and just this yeah, like the deep hair. gravelly voice. Yeah, yeah. And she's wild. The hair is very much her in that. The hair is the symbol for like yeah. what she's like. And so, and she and she kind of has this like bizarre network of like these really odd friends. And yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of this. And I think for people living in like maybe the Midwest or with Midwestern souls, let's say like me or on the West Coast, like to imagine this like East Coast life yeah, where like New Yorkers. everyone's this bizarre New Yorker artist person, you know, <laughs> like it, it's, it's a very immersive world, but I mean, and, and certainly that is part of the plot of the show that yeah. she's supposed to be getting closer to some realization about her life. Do you, I mean, did you find the realization that she comes to maybe without spoiling it too much for those who want to go watch? Is, is it a kind of universal realization or was it something very peculiar to her? Do you think that she was coming to? Well, I mean, I think the show, the, the the show writers would like us to think that this is kind of a universal mm-hmm. human experience. And maybe she's, she, her journey is particularly painful, maybe, because mm. she's had a difficult life. They, right. they let you know, you right. know, through the course of the show. Right. But I mean, I, I think this idea of, um, let's see, I don't want to give anything away, but this idea that we are like, healed in part through our relationships with one another and through deep introspection. I think that they see that as a universal human thing. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, or even just like the idea, like there's a dynamic with the parent, you Mm -hmm. know, and the idea. I was just, I was just reading something today in a newspaper about how, yes, I get a newspaper delivered to my house, humble brag, slipped it in, slipped it in. Um, But reading something about just like, there's, it was a book review of a new book that's out about just like someone trying to go back and like excavate who their parents really were. Mm -hmm. Like there's this sense, like there's a line in the, in the Odyssey in Homer's Odyssey where, where, where Odysseus's son says something like, can a boy ever really know his father? Like this idea, like our parents are, are very familiar to us. Like we grew up with them and we know them like no one else. And yet, on the other hand, there's something that's like always eternally mysterious about our parents. Oh, and I yeah. think part of the show's journey is her trying to like somehow deal with some aspect of the relationship with a parent. It was a single mom in the show, it seemed to be. But like, yeah. so that I think is almost universal, this idea that we don't really know our parents or there's some kind of like either low or high level trauma that we all kind of come through with our parents and we never really know them. Well, you know, it's funny that you brought the ancients up because the person that I thought of was Freud and mm. this the the way that Freud talks about this oceanic, like pre-birth kind of primordial experience mm-hmm. um, and that somehow like we're birthed <laughs> into um, this world and we have to in some way resolve this mm-hmm. like crisis point with a parent. Right. I, I think that that, I mean, in, in this case, it was an extreme example, but you know, both of the major characters in the show need to have some, they have some sort of major figure in their life Mm -hmm. with whom they need to like do business with. I wonder why it's so hard to know our parents. Doesn't it seem like (sighs) we should know them so much better than we do? I mean, not even us particularly, but I'm sure everybody feels this way. Like there's some aspect of your parents' life where you're just like, if you could have just been a fly on the wall or known like what they were really thinking, 
you know, but you can just never quite get there. And I think in the show that that problem is really acute because the mom, you know, maybe has like a mental illness that yes. makes that makes that that distance is is just like so far. Um, but it's it's a fascinating sort of reflection on on a woman kind of coming to a crisis point in her life where she really does have to do that kind of thing. Which leads me to a question I want to ask yes. you really badly. Okay. Do, in your opinion or your experience, you could either be abstract or personal. Okay, you got options here. <laughs> okay. Do women have a midlife crisis? And I ask it because, just because it's interesting, but also the main character, Nadia, she asks that question in the first episode. Can women Can, have a You know, do women midlife? have, I forgot how she put it, but it's like, this question comes up. And I think the show is kind of centered around the idea of her having something like a female midlife crisis, which is a stereotypically male experience culturally. Right. Do women have, do women talk like that? Do Take us into the world of the ladies. Do, Let me just speak for speak all, for all women. Do I mean yeah. is, is that a thing? Is, is is the midlife crisis a thing for women? Okay, okay. So I'm going to answer this one. Just me, myself, and I. Mm. Not necessarily speaking for all women, kind. Although I would expect that there, there's there are probably some of our female listeners who would share my experience. Mm. Um, okay. Caveat aside, um, I think as a woman, uh, I don't feel the luxury that most that I interpret a midlife crisis to be for men. For men, yes. Which is to say, like, in order, like, what are the ingredients needed for a midlife crisis? Well, first off, you have to have expendable money, right? Like, you have to be able to spend some money on yourself because it usually involves, these are the markers of it at least, like right. a fancy car or like a young girlfriend who wants to be taken to Vegas or on a cruise or something like that. Um, or some sort of like self-improvement, like whitening your teeth or something. Mm -hmm. And um, so then you also have to have the time, which most women my age um, are busy. And if they, if they have um, jobs outside of the home, they're busy raising their children, mm -hmm. working. Like they can't, they don't have headspace. I ain't got time for a midlife for having crisis. A midlife cri I seriously, I don't. So tell me what it is about <laughs> this. And oh wait, I mean, also there's like a class component, I think as well. Mm -hmm. And a racial component to mm -hmm. like how many, like, it seems like in the legendary version of it. Yeah. Most of the people who are having midlife crises mm -hmm. are like men, white men with like a certain amount of money to spend on right. said crisis. Right. Well, what do you, what do you think? Well, about? I think I think I think the basic mythology of the midlife crisis in American sort of middle class white maledom to, to like over to qualify it like mm -hmm. in five degrees <laughs> is that it's the idea that and it's probably more universal than that. It's the idea that you. You know, you go through childhood, you're a child, you're running around with your buddies, you're just living life. But yeah. then at some point, you kind of make this more serious turn toward acquiring things, mm. acquiring a job, acquiring a wife, acquiring money and tools and cars and things. And you do that acquiring, acquiring thing, and you kind of build up that scaffolding around yourself. Yeah. But then at some point it breaks. Like you can't, you realize like your body breaks down. You know, this is like the idea of like, you know, like a 45-year-old man having a heart attack scare or something right, like that. Right. And it's like, you realize like, oh no, this is really going to happen. Like I'm going to die. Yeah. And all those feelings that were associated with the building or the acquiring, you know, th even like even like the the trope of the midlife crisis affair, say for example, right, right. is all built around this idea, I think for men of a certain age that like, oh, it was so fun to like romance and woo, yeah. and, and woo my spouse and to get that. But- at a certain point, then you're married for 15, 20 years. It's like, oh, what happened to those feelings? They're dead. They're gone. I need those back. That was so great. 
And so you go on a quest to try to reacquire that, which involves like these feudal kinds of like, and then all the cliches come in, right? Right, Like the sports car, it's like, I got to feel like I'm, what is it now that I'm supposed to acquire? I already have a nice house and I already have a nice wife and I already have nice kids, but I love those feelings I had through doing, getting those things. Right. So, okay. So I think that that's the basic mythology. And then all the breakdowns you see are breakdowns of a failure to descend into what the spiritual writer Richard Rohr calls becoming the the the, the holy fool in, in older age. You enter the second half of your life, which is one devoted to others and relinquishing this like need to grasp and to get all this stuff. I heard, okay, I throw it back to you on this point though. Okay. I heard um, someone pitching this idea of the mythology of the American male midlife crisis, but saying this was his opinion. Granted, this was like a man speaking about what he thinks women were like or do. I don't yeah. know. He was saying, oh, do women have a midlife crisis? Sort of, but actually not. And why not? Because it gets short-circuited. Why? Because a lot of them have children. And when you have a child, you experience the total breakdown of, you know, just like your body is taken <laughs> over by this alien form. And you just kind of like you've experienced that loss of self in a way that's so profound that you get over it and become wiser sooner. And men are left grasping at the sports cars. Oh, that's an interesting. That was his take. That was, that was what I heard someone yeah. say. And so I don't know if that's true or not, though. You know, OK, I, I, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I think in some ways it would sort of depend how old you are when you have your mm. children mm. Um, to really fully appreciate what's going on mm. while it's happening. Mm. So I'm I'm an older mom. Like I am a woman of the the medical code is advanced maternal age. Advanced maternity. <laughs> used to be geriatric. <laughs> um, but basically. Geriatric maternity. They, isn't that sad? Oh, yeah. That I, I actually saw um, like an insurance code on one of my tests that said elderly. <laughs> so elderly. I'm an elderly mom. Wow. Yeah. And um, and so <laughs> I am, I think I'm much more aware of my own mortality and of the fact that um that having a child, you're taking your life into your hands. Mm. I think if I would have had a child at 19 or so, you know, like, or younger when historically women used to have children, mm-hmm. I think it would be just more a, a part of my existence. I, I don't know if I would take it as like to be such a monumental sure. experience as it is. So I don't know. I mean, I can kind of see that. Certainly motherhood lets you know that you're not in control of a lot of things in your life. Oh, right. Um, control, and that's the big theme as well. This idea, this theme of control and loss of control. Yeah. So, so back to to Russian Doll. Mm-hmm. This character seems to be experiencing this. Well, I mean, this is a not a huge spoiler. I think we find this out in the first minute of the show. Yeah. But basically, she's this character who, on her thirty sixth birthday, dies and then keeps dying. She keeps reliving the day of her thirty sixth right. birthday, or an approximation of that. Right. Um, and then tries to avoid death, but there is no avoiding death until all the things in her life are stripped away, and she learns a certain particular valuable lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, and. How do you think that that compares to this midlife crisis? (laughs) Well, you know, I think it compares to it just because, okay, so when she begins the show by asking that question, to me, it it frames the experience in terms of like a life breakdown or a crisis moment Mm, of some mm -hmm. kind, maybe not even midlife, but a moment in which values are questioned, right? Like that any of us might experience at any age where it's like, what am I doing? 
What is my life for? You know, even the idea of coming back over and over again reminds me if I could sneak a little scholarship in here, some do philosophy. It, do, do it. Do it. Do <laughs> it. I mean, I thought right away of, of, of the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, or classicist really and philosopher, who, um, I mean, this was the idea that came to me. Um, it's, he has this famous kind of aphorism in his book, um, The Gay Science, and he, and he repeats it in various kinds of ways in other scholarships in, in Thus Spake Zarathustra and in other ways. But it's, it's called, the, it's like Nietzsche's twist on the myth of eternal return. I'll read a passage here, which I just happen to have queued up, coincidentally, because I just like read this for fun for breakfast. Yep. <laughs> um, this is aphorism 341 in, in the gay science. Um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche writes this. Okay, just consider this. Think about this. What if some day or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this is what the demon says, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you. All in the same succession and sequence, even this spider and this moonlight between the trees and even this moment and I myself, the eternal hourglass of existence is turned upside down again and again and you with it, O speck of dust. So I think for Nietzsche, this actually, despite the fact that sounds super depressing, right? Yeah, totally. He meant he meant it to be like, it's actually a meditation on joy or the kind of possible joy you could experience, which is very different in a way, I guess. Okay, so he meant it to be like, can you actually embrace your own life so fully? Who you are and what you are, these little details we see around us, the room we're in, the people you're around. Can you embrace it so fully that you could actually will yourself to say, yes. I would like to live this over and over and over again, just for like eternity. Could you could you affirm yourself in your life to that extent? I think that's what he's asking, or at yeah. least that's what he's been interpreted to, a, to ask here. So it's like a demon, yes, but it gets transferred into almost like this angelic promise that you could love your life and love yourself so much that you'd really want that. In Russian Dahl, you know, uh, it, it, it's a it's a nightmare basically yeah. because she keeps dying. You know, but to what point would she have to keep living the life or that day over and over again until she could actually push through to some kind of joy? Which I take it as the final scene in the series. Yeah, that there is a push through to the joy, and that she has actually achieved this idea of Nietzsche's almost like radical embrace of something. Even though I guess she's kind of changed, so that puts a spin on it. It's not the same. Well, okay, here's a big distinction, I think, between Nietzsche and this story, which I'm so glad you brought that up. And it's the idea that she can't do it alone, mm. right? Mm. So there's—this is a spoiler, but um, one of the fun <laughs> things about the story is eventually— I mean, for a while, you start to feel exhausted with this character because yes. she's just she's exhausted. doing the same thing. You hear the exact same song every right. time. It's really right. irritating. It's it's catchy at the beginning. It's right. irritating toward the end. Right. Um, and But then you she finds to her surprise— that there is another human being who's going through this thing at the same time as her. Mm. And, I mean, I think, I'm not an expert on Nietzsche, but I think that he would definitely not see the what, what becomes her salvation is mm -hmm. this healing that she experiences through another human being, right? right? right. And he's all about this oh, yeah. solitary blonde beast. Oh, yeah. You know, Nietzsche, yeah. Nietzsche was a huge <laughs> failure on the level of connection with other people. Yeah. But, 
I, but I think that that, like that idea of this kind of ferocious embrace of of a present moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the the lessons that mm-hmm. people are s- supposed to get from that, but that it can only come through this very like compassionate relationship with another human being mm-hmm. who I, to me I think the fun of the story is that it very much flips the gender script on oh, what yeah. you're expecting. Yeah. So and like a 30-year-old version of this story, the genders would be reversed, I think. Oh, you think so? It'd be like the masculine story. Right. He's having an, you know, he's having a breakdown. He goes right. and talks to his friends and they're like, what's wrong with you? Right. And then halfway through, he meets this woman who becomes his salvation. Right. Instead, yeah. <laughs> you get this very aggressive, like kind of wild feminine character who then meets this uh, very, very risk-averse, conscientious, right. salvific, eventually salvific, like both of them, you right. know, save each other. and But he's very much the beta character Oh yeah, it, it, in the storyline. He's very so, likable. I was worried about, I was like, I oh no, I, I was like, oh, I like her so much. I don't want them to introduce a new character. But then I was like, oh no, I really like this new character. Oh yeah. Do you think the show, do you think the show has anything... Can the show be read or watched, do you think, with an eye toward a theological theme like providence or determinism or something like that? Like is that is that a is that a is that a kind of religious lane you can run down when watching Gosh, the show? I'd be interested to hear you you answer first and then I'm gonna go for it. Oh no, I I, I mean the fact that like you come the question that comes up if you have to live this eternal recurrence is like, can you change something? Right? Oh, yeah. In any kind of time travel show, you get this motif that comes up like, can you change the past and so on? And then she, even though she tries, she can't, although the, the show subverts that a little bit because I got the sense by the end that maybe she has changed something. I think so. I mean, in the end, you get the idea that whatever plane of existence both of these characters are on, there is some hope for mm-hmm. for them in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I could, I think a credible reading of it could be that this is some sort of providence, mm. that there are forces that are outside both of their control that mm-hmm. are, like there's a, um, a homeless man who seems to be, who facilitates, right. you know, some of the, their realizations at right. some point in time, like who is that person and why does that person, right. you know, keep popping up or right. I don't know, something like that. I think right. you could. I think you could go, could go Providence. Why are students? Do you think I? I notice in teaching texts to students, especially when teaching in a great books program, which we both sometimes do uh-huh. at times. Whenever motifs of like determinism and providence come up, Ugh. people get really excited. That's the oh, joke yeah. among professors is like, how many times are students going to get obsessed about this idea of like determinism and free will? Like, why do people love that topic oh. of determinism and free will so much? Maybe it's because as 18 to 22 year olds, the college students, they're just obsessed with questions of like, am I, am I my own person now? Can I experience freedom? <sighs> do my parents still, you know, control my life like puppeteers? Yeah. Is that the reason why people are obsessed with it? Well, maybe. I mean, I definitely think that you could make a developmental argument because one of my teaching partners and I, we used to have a little coffee drinking game that we would play. <laughs> Professor when, game. Yeah. Um, a coffee when drinking When we were game. co-teaching a class, yes. every time students would bring up free will, which was inevitable several All the times. Time. Yeah, we would drink. And mm-hmm. so we'd be like, oh. And uh, so I left freshman year <laughs> wired. But by the time you get to the senior year, I think that a lot of students have realized that that in addition to this idea of free will versus like divine 
control yeah. or maybe even just a, a scientific determinism or whatever. Um, there are lots of other questions going on, right. <laughs> like in this world right. that we live in. And so I think, yeah, the students, um, I don't think that's the most interesting question personally, right. because I'm kind of like, how could I even tell if I had it? Right. I don't. I don't know. Do those do those questions continue to capture your imagination? Not really. No. Why? Actually, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's just like you know, as a younger person, there was this moment when you know to be free. I mean, I perceive myself as free, and it feels yeah. like that's kind of all that matters. Although, I guess as I've gotten older, I guess for all of us, there are certain benchmarks that have passed us in our lives. Speaking of a midlife crisis, <laughs> no connection here, but like. You realize when you start, like if you're, say you're a sports fan uh-huh. and you watch sports, there's there's a time when you think, I could be a baseball player. I could be a football player. And then you're like, wait, I'm the same age as these players. That's crazy. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I'd be like a really old player right now in the NFL. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm actually older than these players. Yeah. And then it's like, you realize these things are cut off to you. And there's a certain kind of determinism actually, in a certain way, a certain kind of loose determinism, you could say, that does apply in life when you get older, because there are certain things I absolutely cannot do. That are right. totally determined. Right. I will not be an NBA player. That can never happen. It cannot <laughs> but happen. But you're tall. Uh, yeah, I'm tall. Yeah. It cannot happen. And so I think getting older is kind of like you you see your past that way and certain things just become real. I, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I actually think that's true because, uh, and here I'll give my own example of that. Mm-hmm. I think that as I've become older, I know for sure that my dreams have gotten a lot more modest, mm, but much more fulfilling. So, for totally. example, I've realized that my husband and I have experienced a, a good deal of class uplift together, mm-hmm. right? We're both from, um, you know, working class, below the poverty line um, families and households. Mm-hmm. And our children are going to inherit a different, a, right. a world of many more opportunities. Right. And that to me feels way more fulfilling than my 17-year-old dream of becoming a musical theater star. Oh, was that you know your dream? I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. I Back in the day, it was Rent and Les Mis. Well, I think know. at age 17, nothing nothing against you 17-year-olds out there, but it's like, I don't know, the imagination's very limited to like fantasies that you see it is. in media and so mm-hmm. on. There's a book about parenting. I think it's called All Joy But No Fun. And I think that that phrase, All Joy But No Fun, <laughs> does describe adulthood in some ways. Yeah. I mean, there's like a lot of this like slow burn, fulfilling kind of joy in say parenting or in marriage that isn't like fun, like the way I thought it would be fun. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Some, some travel, some time travel stories like this one though, I think do. And I think we've been circling around this, but just to approach it directly, they do address deeply spiritual questions. Yes. Like, can you redeem some past moment or version of yourself? Can you go back and like do the right thing? I, I wonder, like, does Christianity have an analog to this idea that you can go back in time and redeem yourself? Or does some other religious movement have a good idea about that that would really, like, mesh well with the, with the, with the theological universe of Russian doll? Um, well, it's really funny that you, you bring that up because you bring up a passage that I was raised around, which is Joel 2.25. Oh, in the Bible, Joel 2.25. Yeah, I'm bringing it into your territory Old Testament. Right oh, now. you're going there. Yeah. I got to look this up. Yeah, Joel 2.25, which is, I will make up to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Oh. Um, that one was a weirdly famous uh, passage in the movement that I was raised in was founded by a woman named Amy Semple McPherson in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And she preached a bunch of sermons about that. But basically, she, okay, so this is interesting. A lot of American traditions have this idea that time 
is a straight arrow, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of times, a lot of Christian theology is based on that, right? From right. creation to revelation, right. like we're heading in a particular direction. But she liked to talk about it in terms of a cyclical like, really? calendar. Yeah, which as I understand it, and you can talk about this in, in just a second, I think has more in common with the ancients. But she talks about how like God is redeeming the world like through these redemptive cycles. Wow. And so there will be a time when God will like, in some ways, give you a do-over. So take really? back those years wow. that the locusts have eaten. That the locusts have uh-huh. eaten. I totally get it now. I would have never thought of the verse that way. Me neither. Would have never occurred to me yeah. to go to it that way. <laughs> I was, you know, when I think of a, a passage within the kind of Christian scriptural universe that could get you like something like that, I yeah. was thinking about um, First Peter chapter three. There's this famously enigmatic reference um, to Jesus like dying. This is First Peter uh, 318 for Christ also suffered for, for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God he was put to death and made alive da 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 in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah da da da, da. so it's like wait what so Jesus descends to the dead, preaches to spirits who are in prison. I mean, the idea, why would he preach to them unless they were somehow going to be like let out of the prison or they were going to somehow like encounter Jesus in this like weirdly cosmic moment in which they would then be able to like redeem their lives or something. Right. I don't know what what one is supposed to get out of a passage like that exactly, but. Well, I mean, I think that there are lots of passages that seem to suggest that God exists outside of those type of constructs. I knew someone who talked to me once about praying about things that had happened in the past, like that that they had like found some kind of like really deep meaning about like, and it was like, I don't know, to me, maybe I'm just like so like linear and forward thinking. I was just thinking like, like how could that help to do that? It reminds me of of the practice of praying for the dead. Mm. Russian dolls theology would probably include something like that because in a sense she's dead all the time in her life yeah. kind of gets acted out like this kind of redemption where she has to figure out, you know, can things really be made right? Can she really go back in time, like literally with her mom, let's say, or with another mm-hmm. person and like sort of like act out a kind of living prayer to make her life something meaningful or rich or worthwhile? Yeah. I mean, I think that that we could all agree we'd all hope to get that chance. I'll take it. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. We love all our weirdos, near and far. For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website, weirdreligion.com. And join our social media conversations about religion and pop culture on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Weird Religion. And we're YouTubing now, so find us on YouTube. YouTube us. <laughs> no. <laughs> These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios, engineered by Luke DiLorenzo and executive produced by Troy Wellstad. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our album artwork by John Williams. A special shout out to Portland Seminary for sponsoring the season and to Trigger the Studio Dog. When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye. Bye.